Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author Sam Baker. Today I'm chatting to a woman who is the very definition of a bestseller. Jodie Pico has written 24 global smash hits, as well as two YA books with her daughter Samantha, and her last eight novels have debuted at number one in the New York Times bestseller list. If you have a platform, the first thing you need to ask yourself is when you crawl up on it, what are you going to say? What is the point of having a platform if you say nothing? And if you don't try to leave the world a better place than the way you found it. In her new novel, The Book of Two Ways, Jodie explores life, death, grief, and the biggest question of all, what would our lives look like if we'd taken a different path? Who doesn't wonder that sometimes? Over a cup of coffee as big as her head, Jodie shares her own what-if moment, why COVID-19 makes her fear for women's rights, and why she's angrier than ever. Apologies in advance if the transatlantic sound quality is occasionally a bit shonky. I'm here in my spare room in Edinburgh, and today's guest, Jodie Pico, is at home in sweltering New Hampshire. Jodie, tell us a bit about the room that you're in so we can get a sense. Is it your writing room? Yeah, this is my office. This is it. I'm happy to report that I cleaned up the shelves behind me because I was so tired of seeing them messy on Zooms. Yeah, they're very tidy. Very tidy. I appreciate that. It is our attic in our house. And for many years, it you know had just plain uh, sheetrock. We never finished the attic off. And finally, I, I said, you know, I, I'm up here all the time. It would be really nice if we painted it. <laughs> it's my haven. It's a very nice space. And it's got a giant desk across one wall with my computer and my printer on it, but also all my research and everything that I need to get to. I'm going to ask you about your research in a minute, because this book, The Book of Two Ways, for the listeners, they probably know you as the best-selling writer of highly topical, issue-driven stories of the human heart, like A Spark of Light and My Sister's Keeper. But The Book of Two Ways, which is the new book, Mm -hmm. it's different. It's really different, isn't it? Tell us about that. You know, I don't see it as different. I always think of my books as either internal books or external books. 
And I think I ask very big questions related to topics that are what I would call external, like racism, like abortion rights, things like that. Some of them are internal and they ask questions about loss and about, you know, fears about love, about about your children. I think of Leaving Time as a very internal book, you know, being separated from people you love. And I think of the book of two ways very much as being an internal kind of book that really asks, you know, the question, who would you be if you weren't who you turned out to become? What if your life had taken one of those other paths? And I don't think there's a a single person on the planet who doesn't think about that. No, I was going to say, it's such a perennial question. There's not anybody who doesn't want to know the answer to that. And at what point that change might have happened? I was walking this morning and um, I was hiking with two friends and I was telling them that I was going to be doing this podcast. And I said, so let me ask you a question. Mind you, we're all, you know, in our 50s. We're happily married. We have grown kids. And I said, if I asked you to imagine the person you thought you'd wind up with, do you have that person in your mind? They both said, yes. I said, it's not the person you're living with now. And they were like, oh my gosh, you're so right. (laughs) True. You know, we always there's always someone or something that got away. And I really wanted to look at that. I wanted to look at whether we make choices or whether our choices make us. But you've explored that. You could have approached it in a much more rom-com kind of way. (laughs) That wouldn't have been you, let's face it. It would not have been very Jodie Pico. You haven't. Tell us us about the inspiration because it's so hard to explain. From where I'm sitting, it's like, whoa, where do you start? It's The Book of Two Ways is about a woman named Don um, Edelstein who suffers this near-death experience. Uh, Her plane is crashing, and as she is going down, her life flashes before her eyes. But what she sees is not her husband or her daughter or her work as a death doula taking clients basically to cross over to that last moment where they die. Instead, she imagines the work she gave up 15 years ago as an Egyptologist and the love of a man that she left behind, a guy named Wyatt. And when her plane actually lands and she's safe, she finds herself at a real crossroads trying to figure out why she made the decision she made and if they were the right ones. And And the book takes you on two alternate paths. And the reason it does that, and the reason it's called The Book of Two Ways, is because of my son, actually. My oldest son, Kyle, was an Egyptology major at Yale. And he came home one day when he was in college, and he had a text that he was reading called The Book of Two Ways. And The Book of Two Ways is actually one of the coffin texts. It's an ancient funerary text that was found in the coffins of nobles in the Middle Kingdom in Middle Egypt. And basically, they were a series of spells that would give the deceased the all the knowledge that they needed to get to the afterlife. The Book of Two Ways is super special because it's our first known map of the afterlife. And it was usually painted in the bottom of coffins um, in the Middle Kingdom. And this map shows two routes. It's kind of two wavy lines. It was a blue water route and a black land route. And they were separated by a lake of fire. And you, as the deceased, could take either path. And you'd wind up at the same place, which is the field of offerings, which is like Egyptian heaven. And it's where you get to party with the gods. But I love that concept, metaphorically, that there might be two very different paths that take you to the same spot. And I really wanted to try to create a book that had that as an overarching metaphor. Structural nightmare. Oh, you have no idea. 
<laughs> this is a really, really hard book to pull off. So did you know about Egyptology before you started on this? Because there's an awful lot of information in this book, isn't there? The interesting thing about this book is that, you know, my son, he's almost uh, 29 now. And when I had the idea for this book, he was in his early 20s. And I knew I had to go to Egypt in order to write this book. I had a trip planned to do the research. And that spring was Arab Spring, and they canceled all American trips and tourism to Egypt. And I was like, well, I guess I'm not writing this book right now. But I just mm-hmm. kept on waiting because I knew I really wanted to, to write it. I just I didn't know how to get there and how to do it. And then my son got married, and he invited his thesis advisor, who is one of the foremost Egyptologists in America. Her name is Colleen Darnell. And Fancy. Yeah, she's at the wedding, and I was like, I still want to write this book, Colleen. She's like, oh. I'll take you to Egypt. And so I actually wound up getting to go to Egypt, not as a tourist, but as an academic. And that made a huge difference because we had entry to places and parts of Egypt where tourists are not allowed. And most of those places are where the the Book of Two Ways, the actual Book of Two Ways were found in coffins. One of the things that really struck me is that whilst a huge chunk of the book is about Egyptology and the Book of Two Ways and, and living a good life or having a good death. One thing that really struck me is that Dawn, you know, she could have been an incredibly successful academic in Egyptology. That's, I'm sure there's a right way of putting it. I don't know what that is. Um, but for various reasons we shouldn't go into, she ends up being a mum and a death doula. And I think that that is really going to resonate with a lot of women, isn't it? That I could have been Mm-hmm. I was on my way to being. Yeah. And that for some reason, whatever that reason might be, I chose to put myself second. Yes. And I think we make that decision all the time. I think we're making it right now, particularly in America with mm. COVID. I honestly think that with what is going on with schooling, with working from home, we are going to see so many women dropping out of the workforce that it's going to set us back a decade. I could go on for hours about that. No, please do. Please do go on. I mean, this is away from the book of two ways, but unfortunately, because of misogyny and because of a long history, women do not make as much money doing the same jobs that men do. So when you are stuck at home because you're supposed to be quarantining and you are working from home and you also somehow have to educate your children, the default will fall to the mom because if anyone's not going to do their job, it's it's going to be the job that isn't making as much money for the family income. So the guy, the man gets to work and gets privacy and the woman finds herself spread even more thin trying to do homeschooling while she is also trying to do her job. That is insupportable for a long period of time. Women will leave the workforce. They will be the ones who are again in charge of making sure that the kids are getting the education that they're trying to get online. And when they come back to the workforce, they're going to come back at lower pay and there are going to be fewer jobs and we're going going to literally be where we were a decade earlier. I mean, I I actually fear greatly for this. And what I wish we saw more of right now, instead of men thinking, well, we need to figure this out at the family unit level, men need to be going to their bosses and saying, what are you doing to make accommodations right now so that I can have the time off that my wife needs to work to? You know, it's when men bring this up to their administrations that things will get changed because nobody's listening to women. No, and same old, same old. There's just been a bunch of research here in the UK. I don't know whether there has been in the States 
about, you know, women are vastly more likely to ask to be furloughed because they kind of have to be the ones to do that in the family. And yeah, and yet they're still being expected to do their jobs. Yeah. And I'm tired of that. I'm just I'm just tired and cranky right now. I am tired of having to do it all and to expect that men get the coddling and the privacy that they need in order to do their work while women have to basically become human spackle and fill in all the cracks, you know, but I, to go back to, to Dawn and to what she gave up, I think another, a flip way of looking at that, a very positive way of looking at what happens to her is that, no, she is not an Egyptologist and she, you know, isn't publishing and she isn't famous, but the work that she does individually with clients as a death doula, helping them transition out of this world into whatever comes next is very similar to what she would have been studying had she been an Egyptologist. You know, that question of when you die at the end of your life, are you going to be happy is something that they were asking back in the Egyptian tombs 4,000 years ago. Mm. And that you're asking now when you are sitting next to a death doula or when you're alone dying because of COVID in a hospital. You know, these are very relevant and tender questions right now. And the answer, ironically, is actually the same thing it's always been which is if you want to have a good death, you have to have a good life. You know, so I, I would like to believe that what Dawn is doing is still relevant and is still a sort of a subsection of what she was studying. You know, what she went through mm. with her life may have taken a different look, but is the same subject matter. And, you know, I offer the example of my own life, which is that in a different world, I am still a middle school language arts teacher and I'm teaching, you know, 14 year olds and I'm teaching them literature and how to write and how to create an essay and all the things that I used to do before I was a full time writer. I would argue that there's a world in which you see my job now as being an educator. It's just a much larger classroom that I'm working with. (laughs) Very much larger. One of the things that really kind of brought me up short is when Dawn's relationship with Wynne. Yeah. Which is Wynne is the most wonderful character and she's one of Dawn's clients, Mm -hmm. I suppose. And she's just wonderful. I absolutely love Wynne. But she's talking about the one that got away. And she says women don't get to have midlife crises where they run off to find themselves. Well, they don't. They don't. (laughs) Right, we don't. You know, it's it's almost expected that if a guy decides he has to bike across the country or he has to buy a sports car or he has to have an affair, that's almost de rigueur at this point. But you very rarely see a woman just pick up and move to Paris, for example. You know, mm. and I'm sure some of that is evolutionary and biological. But on the other hand, there is this presumption that women are supposed to hold it all together and hold it all inside. And one of the things I really love about Wynne as a character is, of course, you know, Dawn is hired by Wynne to be her death doula to help her as she's dying of cancer. And I would argue that Dawn learns much more from Wynne than the other way around. Mm. And it is through her her friendship and her developing relationship with Wynne, who is her age, which I think is another issue that is uh, very difficult for Dawn as a character, because you, you're, of course, faced with your own mortality. But I think that, that what Wynne really forces Dawn to acknowledge are all those things that I think we have been taught to bury and to not wonder about and not dream about, you know, not allow ourselves to wander down that path of what, what could I have been? What would I have been? You know, I do think it's important to acknowledge that the maybes are not necessarily the right paths. And that's great. But I think there's something very seductive about imagining who you would have been and imagining that your life would have been so much better. It may actually not have been better. 
It just would have been different. I mean, that's why rom-coms always stop at the kind of happy ever after, because you don't actually want to know that you would have been better off with the one that you left or in the job you left or, you know, or whatever. The ever after, it's it's what happens when that book is closed that gets really interesting. It's Cinderella in the castle, you know, realizing she still has to clean the toilets. <laughs> And is the prince ever going to clean the toilets? No, and he's really not so charming. <laughs> yeah, actually thinking about it, thinking about Wyatt, one of the male characters in the book, I can't imagine him ever cleaning a toilet, can you? Well, he grew up pretty privileged, so I'm guessing he did not clean a toilet. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I really loved creating Wyatt. Wyatt is one of those characters who just like popped off the page for me. And it was very, very fun. How did you find writing an English character? Well, you know what's funny? I just knew he was British. I didn't realize it until I could hear him in my head. And I was like, oh, wow, he's got an accent. It was fascinating. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, you know, that makes sense. He probably studied at, you know, at Cambridge or Oxford. And yeah, I had a whole background for him, but I really enjoyed it. I love coming to the UK. I love the people and the readers in the UK. And I, it was fun. It was kind of fun having you know that sexy accent in my ear the whole time it was great <laughs> you know, last time we met you were I mean three cities down and it was only five o'clock and on your 900th cup of tea and yeah. Yeah. you didn't look like you felt like it was very sexy at that point <laughs> here talk about other paths I mean here I am bemoaning the fact that I'm going to be doing this online book tour which I really do not want to do you know and this is coming from someone who knows how exhausting it is to do you know multi-continent book tour be careful what you wish for I guess it's so much easier in person, though, isn't it, to have a conversation? and It really is. I'm so grateful to my publishers who are, you know, pivoting and doing hard work to get the book out there and to, to talk it up and to get interest in it. But the world's a different place right now. And, you know, there's a part of me that says, who would not want to read a novel right now about alternative universes? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. But then there's another part of me that's like, oh, you know, yeah, another Zoom call. Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> I'm a little Zoomed out. And I'm sure everybody else is too. I wrote this in a newsletter that went out a month ago to my readers. And I said, I don't even need to see the light at the end of the tunnel anymore. I just need to know the tunnel ends. Yes, that there is an end at some point. Yeah. Right now, it doesn't really feel like that, does it? It feels like we could be living with this for a really long time. Yeah. You know, it's particularly hard. I have asthma. So my husband's been super careful. I haven't been anywhere. I haven't been to a grocery store, you know, since March. The only thing that I do is go for socially distanced hikes outside and I live in a place where wow. I'm lucky enough to be able to walk, you know, six feet away from somebody. That's all I do. I, I don't leave my house. And I am a pretty outgoing person. So that's really hard. And I work in an environment that celebrates collaboration face to face, whether that is the transaction between a reader and a writer or writing uh, librettos and brainstorming with songwriters. You know, it's very hard to do that on a screen. Because so many people have said to me, oh, yeah, but you're a writer. And so all you do is sit in your room and write on your own anyway. It's like, not really. No. You know, it's funny because I remember having kind of that philosophical discussion at the beginning of this and thinking, why am I so sad? You know, this is the way I work. I'm, I am alone in my office. So wh what's the big deal? But it, it's different. There's something very removed and very isolated about it that it's really caused me to reevaluate how much of my business is transactional and is about the connection between mm. the reader and the writer and the reader and the publishing company. It's quite interesting. And also to realize how important it is to see books in the wild. Mm, so I, important. You know, like I didn't realize how much of my knowledge of, oh, that's out now, comes from seeing someone holding a book 
or walking by a bookstore or seeing even something, you know, in a, the grocery store or a bookstore. Uh, and I, I am plugged in. I am subscribed to every blog about new books coming out. You know, I don't know how anyone's finding anything nowadays because we're all just so fragmented in our own little Zoom windows. Yeah. And those lovely moments when somebody WhatsApps you a picture of somebody sitting opposite them on the train reading your book, it's just not happening. Yeah, I know. It is. It's really, yeah. it's a really weird, sad time. Like I don't ever, ever want to publish a book like this again. Into this environment. Yeah. It's really strange. And yeah. I mean, I'm all for a new normal, but I'm for a new normal that allows us to be together. Yeah. Last time we met, we were, it was to talk about a spark of light and we were 18 months or so into a Trump government and Brett Kavanaugh had just been appointed mm-hmm. to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And you were really, really angry, as is a good is a good thing. You should be. I mean, everything I said to you came true. Yeah, and worse. Right. We have not seen them overturn Roe versus Wade yet, um, but they've, they've trying. made multiple dents. Literally this weekend, a federal court overturned an injunction that had stopped a law in Arkansas that had multiple parts of it, but it was targeting abortion clinics. And now among the codicils of this law include the fact that if a woman wants an abortion and has been raped, she needs to get permission from her rapist. God, it's like you couldn't make it up, but you don't have to. Right. I don't have to. So I don't want anyone to tell me that I was being reactionary. <laughs> no, not at all. I don't I don't think anybody would. Are you more angry now? I am a seething ember here in my little, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm furious. I'm so angry at our administration. I'm angry at my country. I'm angry at the selfishness of Americans. I'm angry every time I drive and I see people eating outside without masks less than six feet apart. I'm angry when I see pictures of crowded hallways in schools that are open that shouldn't be. I am angry on behalf of my children who are public school teachers, who are sacrificial lambs. I'm angry because there is no government response to this except to pass it off to states in a country that's made up of 50 states. You know, you need some overarching rules in order, you know, you can cross borders literally and have one state where there are mask requirements and others where there are not. You can't do that in America. It doesn't make any sense. And I'm I'm actually violently disappointed. You know? <laughs> oh my God, that's the worst. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I didn't expect a lot out of this administration. I did not realize the depths to which they could sink. Donald Trump is a monster. I have never seen anything in that he's done the entire time he's been in office that has not been somehow indirectly related to him being reelected. It's all about himself. He doesn't care about anyone or anything except that. And that is not who I want leading me. All I can say is, if you happen to be American listening to this, I sure hope you're voting. It should not be up to us to save democracy. There should be a president who has that as a vested interest. What do you think is going to happen, really, with this election? I'm scared. I don't know. I honestly do not know. I don't think that Trump will give up the ghost that easily. I do not believe that he has the support to win. I'd like to believe he doesn't have the support to win. A third of the country are slavishly devoted to him and are Mm. patent hypocrites. But two thirds of the country is not. And, you know, I would like to believe that they will get out and vote, but we are in crazy times. And if you can't get a ballot counted, then your vote doesn't count. 
and um, the administration is doing everything it can to discount voting for people, to make sure that there are wide swaths of people who don't have access to voting. It's unconscionable to me. The only reason I want to live through COVID sometimes is to see how history represents this idiot running our country. I've met Joe Biden. I had the the opportunity to moderate a talk that he gave in Burlington, Vermont. He's a very, very nice man, and his heart is absolutely in the right place, and he has empathy and compassion in spades for people. Am I going to vote for him? Yes, I am, and I'm going to tell everybody else to vote for him. The countries that seem to have gotten through COVID the sm- most smoothly are all being run by women. Every war has been started by a male leader. If you're listening at that point, Jody gave a great big shrug. There is a huge difference between people who want to narrow the world and people who want to expand it. And I would like to believe that the people who want to expand it are the ones who have the upper hand, no matter how slow that is. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So much is made of the divide between millennials and the older generation, you know, boomers, so a bit older than you and me. Personally, I feel like I've learned a huge amount Mm. from millennial women. How do you feel about that? Do you find them inspiring? I do find them inspiring. And I also find them incredibly smart. You know, like they care about things that we just took for granted couldn't happen for us. Yes. Right? Like, you know, I did the work-life balance, for example. Like we all went into this saying, oh my God, I have to be a mom and I have to have a job and I have to be perfect at both. And I have to be super woman. Like you're constantly failing at everything, right? make it look good, but you you don't feel like you've got a hands on it. Yeah. And they're like, uh, no, I'm not going to do that. And here's what's going to happen. I'm going to, you know, work half time, or I'm going to demand this kind of setup, or I'm going to take it on my own terms. And I'm going to live in Seattle, you know, but, but phone into my office in Washington, DC. I think they respect themselves more than we did. Mm. Speaking personally, I just felt that, that you had to put up with it. Yeah. And that their approach is, well, that sucks. Right. I mean, that's one of the impetus for the book and and the podcast is that when we last spoke, I was working with a whole load of young women in their 20s and early 30s. And I was going into perimenopause and I was just thought, this is shit. I didn't know what was happening to me. And I didn't know, like I do now, that I would get out on the other side and it would be great. And I just thought there is no way these young women are going to put up with this. Mm-hmm. They are not going to get to perimenopause and go, oh, okay, that this is the crap that's waiting for me now. And I just thought, hang on a minute. Well, why should we wait for them right. to go, I'm not putting up with this? Right. You know, let's do that now. Yeah. And what was your own personal shift? 
You and I are almost exactly the same age, I think, give or take a month. Are you 54? That's how old I am. Yeah. You know, for me, I am coming from a position of such privilege. And, you know, it's not just the fact that I am successful in my career and I have a beautiful home and a great husband who's supportive and three fantastic children who are contributing to society in a great way. Um, and I'm not a target of racism. I mean, there's so many things that I can put in the column of good in my life. So for me, it's been very easy. I am outspoken. You know, I, I get a lot of fan mail from people saying, I don't want to hear your political opinions. I don't think you should share these. And I'm not, forget, forget it. I'm not following you on Twitter anymore. You know, you've said something against Trump. And I'm like, well, it, it is my Twitter feed. So by all means, don't follow me. But you know, why is it that we feel that people in the public eye should not have opinions? To me, that is the most disingenuous thing. If you have a platform, the first thing you need to ask yourself is when you crawl up on it, what are you going to say? What is the point of having a platform if you say nothing and if you don't try to leave the world a better place than the way you found it? And do you believe you should share your platform with those less advantaged? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I've I've always done and I've always tried to do is to to raise up authors who aren't there yet. You know, mm-hmm. I had a couple of people do that for me when I was starting out, and it meant the world to me that someone who I respected, who was an established writer, took the time to read my little advanced you know reader copy and say something nice about it. That was a tremendous gift. I'm someone who reads a lot of books and I do a lot of blurbs. I get asked to do about 10 times more than I can actually do, but I try really hard to endorse authors and to help give them a leg up. There are things that we started doing back in March, like to try to make the world better. And we're now five months later going, oh my God, I can't believe I'm still doing this. But (laughs) one of the things that I did was, again, to the point that no one seemed to know new books were coming out. Let me tell you, that sucks. We spend years working on a book. And if you happen to publish during a week when the world falls apart, you're screwed. And so on Twitter, I started doing something I called Teamwork Tuesdays. And every Tuesday morning, I run out a whole series of tweets about books that I am excited about that are being published that day. Because I know, first of all, it helps the authors who don't have a following yet. And second of all, I know that my readers are looking for good things to read too. You know, And I, I write all these books that I'm psyched about and I tag the authors. And at the end of it, I say, please consider buying one of these from a black owned bookstore, because I think that's really important right now, you know, and I give a link mm. to a bunch of black owned bookstores so that literally it's as easy as you clicking and hitting online purchase, you know? So I'm trying to make it easy for people to, to support authors who need support right now. And to support a Black Lives movement, which I think is critical right now. As you've got older, do you think you've got more outspoken, braver? I hesitate to use the word ballsy because we need a female version of that. If you can think of one, let me know. I will. Uh, (laughs) Maybe ball busting. How's that? (laughs) Yeah, I think I have. You know... I would like to say it's it's bravery, but it's more like, I don't give a fuck. I'm too old. You know, I'm just like, I'm going to believe what I believe. You're not going to shut me up. And and again, I just, I think it's really important for me 
to recognize that I have the ability to change some people's minds. Not all of them, not by, not by a long shot, but every now and then you do get someone to think twice. And that is something I try to do with my writing and with the things that I choose to write about. And it's something I try to do in my life. And that's reflected, I think, in my social media. So yeah, I'm not going to let something rest. And I also think it's critical that when I screw up, I say I screwed up and I take down a post or I learn something from it or I comment about how I learned from it. That's a really important skill to show because not a lot of people do that, especially when you're talking about something like racism, which is such an overwhelming issue, particularly right now in the U.S. Yeah, the U.K. too. Yeah, yeah, it's so bad in the U.S. though. A lot of white people, I think, are really afraid of saying anything because of misstepping. And especially because, you know, the truth is, it's not like the black community all believes this is the way to do things. This is the way white people should behave. Some people believe one thing, some people believe others. And that's normal. You know, it's not like we all, not all white people think alike either. But because of that, you may say something and piss someone off and recognize that and want to have a dialogue with them about why that was upsetting to them and what you, you know, what I as a white person might learn from them. But I just think it's really important to have the conversations rather than not have them. Because when you don't, what black people hear is that you don't even care enough to engage. That is definitely an absolute no. So it is really important for me to try to, to continue to learn that way. I think one of the things that is upsetting now in America is that there's a lot of performative racial justice being done. Mm. People who are posting Black Lives Matter on their Facebook page, you know, but aren't actually doing anything or reading anything or bettering themselves in some way. And I think that's really important. You know, and even like yesterday, I had a woman who was a newscaster who read Small Great Things and said, oh my God, I've learned so much about racism. And she tagged me in this post and I wrote her back and I said, thank you so much. But what you actually learned about was white privilege. And if you want to learn about racism, here are two books by Black authors that I really would recommend. You know, read Kendi, read um, Ijeoma Ulo, you know, how, how do we talk about race? How we talk about race and uh, how to be an anti-racist. Yeah. Those two books are great. And they're, you know, you can't look to me, a white person, to tell you about racism because I can't speak to that. You can take like a little hop jump on my novel and then jump straight into something that a black person has written about it, you know, and learn from that. And I, I think it's important to call that out too. You know, it, obviously I'm really excited when people use small great things as a gateway into a discussion about racial justice, but I don't want them to stop with that book. You, know, you can't read that and say, oh, I'm done now. Your work has been subject to a lot of sexism. Hasn't it? You've been kind of, yeah, laughs wryly at the corner there. Do you think that's getting better or worse, that kind of constant dismissal of women's stories? No, it sucks. And it continues. And it is not just in publishing, it's in theater as well. It's so fascinating from a, an empirical perspective, like even something like the the Black Lives movement that has bubbled up, I should say, around the murder of George Floyd. I think that what we're starting to see, and it, as we should see, is a lot of interest in Black writers, Black theater writers, but in many cases, we're leapfrogging women, you know, so they're going straight to male Black writers and straight to male Black theater writers. And I'm just like, wow. I mean, I, I honestly sometimes cannot believe how deep the ore vein is, you know, in America of misogyny. It is ridiculous. And I don't know. I honestly don't know how to solve it. One of my favorite, my favorite stories really about misogyny and about being pigeonholed, you know, as a woman, mm. as a, um, the idea of writing that we only write romance, that we only write children's books, that we write beach reads. I don't, I think most, especially in the UK, I don't know why it's in the UK, but a lot of people 
have judgments about my writing and they've never read a book of mine. Yeah, I I don't know why that is, but there is an awful lot of it in the UK. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who've said, you know, like, oh, I wouldn't read one of her books. Oh, I I don't know what they're expecting, to be honest, you know, or why they wouldn't read them. But I remember when Small Great Things came out, one of the brilliant things my publisher did was release that as an advanced reader copy without my name and without a title on it. And they gave it out to places that never in a million years would have reviewed my books because they see me as writing women's fiction. And the responses to the book were overwhelmingly positive. Like, oh my God, this is like a real voice of a nation. This is like very elite and literary and, you know, highly erudite. It was this idea that, you know, this was the kind of writing that was done by someone who is a serious writer, someone who is luring something important. And then they went back and they said, guess who wrote that? And everyone, you know, a lot of these, these top critics were like, I'm sorry, what? You know? So patronizing, isn't it? It is really patronizing. And it's really, it's really annoying. I don't know how to get out from underneath that, but I do know I'm going to write a book about it. Do. Oh, I am. Do. Crack on. Yeah. Now that's coming in 2024, roughly. If I can do the research I need before it. You know, I think gender discrimination is huge. I think it is unwarranted. I don't know why we even have the title women's fiction. Do we have the title men's fiction? No, that's the whole point, isn't it? It's like commercial women's fiction is even worse. But yeah, if you have commercial men's fiction, then that's fine. But yeah. That's okay. Right. But you don't. But the thing is, too, the sense that some genres are easier to make fun of than others, that you know you could demean somebody for writing chiclet or romance, But if you write thrillers, well, you're at the top of the charts. You know, I I don't really understand that. I mean, I talk a lot about how I think romance is a fascinating genre because it's so hard to do well and you have to get to a certain end point. And to me, the best romance writers are the ones who manage to show you how to create great dialogue. They have to create some kind of tension between characters. Their character development usually has to be outside the box if it's going to be a good book. You know, to me, when you work with so many boundaries, you're forced to become a better writer. And I think people overlook that. I think it's completely dismissive and wrong. I will read anything at any time at different times. You know, I mean, I have highly literary books that I read. I have absolute airport fiction that I read, you know, anything. But I think we all function that way. You know, not everyone's reading Nietzsche on a daily basis. Is anyone? (laughs) You know, I mean, you might read Nietzsche one day and then you might read manga comics the next, you know. That's not to say that one is better than another. They're just different. And different is great. Different is what makes the world go around. Isn't it about putting down women's stories, though? They're saying the female story isn't as important, whether it's a film that's got female leads or, or a book. One of the, um, the other writing that I do is I write librettos. And at this point, I have a musical adaptation of Between the Lines, which is a book I wrote with my daughter, which is about a teenage girl. And it was supposed to be off-Broadway starting this April. And shock, it is not. You know, but it has been an uphill battle to even get to that point because we can't get theater owners who are mostly old white men to even see it or listen to it because it's about a teenage girl and her mother. Now, on the other hand, we have something like Dear Evan Hansen, which clearly was a success. But why is it that women who are... 80% of the ticket buyers for Broadway are expected to care about that, but never get to see their own stories reflected on stage. But it's that classic thing, isn't it, that uh, women will read men and men won't read women. Do we know that that's true? I don't know that we know that's true. We know that's true, but there have been studies done on it and it is disgusting. It's like 
if you look at your bookshelf and every author on it is white, there's something wrong. And if you look at your bookshelf on it and every author on it is male, there's something wrong. You're never going to learn anything if you don't read from perspectives that are different from yours. But so many people don't want that from reading, do they? It's not what they... I don't know what people want anymore. (laughs) (laughs) As you've got older, what do you think about representation of older women in the media and in books and film? What's really interesting is seeing, especially in theatre, because I'm still learning that business, and our lead actress for Between the Lines, who was playing a 17-year-old, was actually in her late 30s. And she looks so young. She's beautiful and so talented. But the woman playing her mother is only a few years older than she is. And that's not uncommon. It's unusual for somebody that age to be playing a really young character. But it's but one of the things we did when we cast is we cast a woman who is probably about, you know, our age. It's multiple roles in the show. And one of her roles is as a mermaid. And we love the idea of like this middle-aged body positive mermaid. <laughs> Last time you saw that. Never, never. Exactly. It's really interesting because it, it's an uphill battle if you are telling a story about a girl. And I don't think it matters how old that girl is. It's hard. It's just hard. I am delighted that the other musical that I have been working on is going to debut at the Octagon Theater in Bolton. It was supposed to be 2021, but now it'll be 2022. And they've been very supportive. And here's a shock. The artistic director is a woman. Mm, Interesting. One of the things that struck me is that the way that women are written about and spoken about and spoken to is so limited. But once you reach perimenopause, It's almost like you vanish altogether. (laughs) There is this weird thing that you are your womb. You know, there's you're not here for much more than that. In America, that believe that certainly that's one of the reasons that we have so many issues centering around abortion rights. You know, I remember hearing things when we still had female presidential candidates in our running. People were mistrustful of the women who didn't have children because they weren't maternal enough. However, you can't be like Kamala Harris, apparently, and ambitious either. No, that's a bit suspect. Yeah. And and I'm saying this with all sarcasm. There is not a single vice presidential candidate who has not looked at that job as saying, in eight years, this could be mine. The fact that it is somehow seen as unseemly for a woman to be strong or powerful or ambitious is really upsetting, really, really upsetting, because it's still seen as an anomaly. The same way when we see the dad at pickup at elementary school, Mm. is home with the kid, we go, oh, isn't that great? It's his own kid. Why should it be great? I noticed you got in the, it's not babysitting when it's your kid line. in the. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. It amazes me when my my husband was a stay-at-home husband. He was great at it. And he loved that he was able to do that. And, you know, there were times that I had to go travel and I was really sad because I didn't get to be home. But I recognize how supportive he was of me in order to do that. And yet, again, I don't know why we should be shocked by that. The problem starts with society, but there are so many things to unpick. It's like, do you just blame the woman who doesn't have the conversation with her husband? Do you blame the infrastructure at work that pays men more and always puts their needs first? I mean, where do you go with it? I know sometimes I just feel like I want to go to bed and pull the covers up. You know, it's a lot. (laughs) What's your emotional age? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. When I think of an age, I always think of like being 19. And I don't know why it wasn't like I was things were so great at 19. But I just kind of focus on myself that I feel I still feel younger than I am. But I would say around 35, probably. It's so interesting. So many people say between 30 and 35. 
I think it's because I, before that, I didn't have enough faith in myself. By the time I was 35, I believed I could. It wasn't a wish. It was a possibility. And, a, you know, like I could see the potential and I could see how to get there. I could see how to chart that course. And there was a strength in me that I didn't have before that. Also, at that point, I'd had all my children and I was no longer sleep deprived. So, <laughs> so I think that's a big part of it, too. Like sometimes I get really tired now, just emotionally tired. And I think it's because you know, there's something Sisyphean about being a woman, about always pushing that rock up a hill mm. and knowing it's going to crush you and knowing you're going to have to get up and push it again. And I sometimes wonder what it would be like to move through the world as a white man. It's be fascinating. So if you could do over. I, know, I wouldn't want to be. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is kind of like getting 50 winning lottery tickets in a row. It's like there's a young woman who worked on the pool and I remember her going to see the first of the Star Wars films with the, and I can't remember the character's name, but the strong young woman, the really feisty young woman. And she came out and she said, that must be like what it's like to be a guy every day of the week. Yeah. Yeah. You know, or say the film Wonder Woman. Right, right, right. Yeah. You know, and you come out and go, that's what it's like to be the hero and to win the fight. And yet I wrote Wonder Woman. I wrote it for DC Comics. I wrote five issues for them. And when I wrote it, one of the things I did was give her this vulnerability because I thought that's what makes her different from superheroes. You know, she loves humans, but she is never going to be one of them. And I thought that was a really interesting intersection. That and the fact that no matter what she does, she can't live up to her mother. <laughs> I just I find that really like interesting that that's where my head went in trying to normalize her and make her relatable. I wouldn't want to be a guy, but I I just wonder what it would be like to move through the world and not see fences. The rest of us are seeing walls and fences. They're seeing doors and just opening them. Yeah, and I'll never know. I mean, not in this lifetime anyway, but I, I just find it really fascinating. They are, it's a rare breed for sure. And you can certainly understand why when you start to feel like you're losing your grasp on that ease of life, you begin to circle the wagons. And that I think is the root of most politics and policy in the world right now. I've got four questions that I always ask. So firstly, give me a book recommendation. Um, so I'm going to tell you about the last book that made me laugh out loud. Because I think we need a little lightness and love. And it was Beach Read by Emily Henry. Uh, what one thing would you like to tell younger women? Follow your heart and not the money. When we're young and we're scared and we're trying to figure out how to make rent, we are very panicked about how are we going to stay afloat? And that is a legitimate concern. I mean, I, I wouldn't tell you to go be homeless on the street and follow your dream. Figure out a way to make it work so that you don't give up on that dream. Because the only way you will not achieve something is if you never try it. That's great. What would your superpower be? I would want to be like Professor X, get inside people's heads and change their minds. <laughs> Interesting. That's such a writery thing to say. I think. It is. I, I probably should have said I want to fly, but I'm afraid of heights, so probably not. No. Uh, any older women that you admire? Older women that I admire? Yeah, there are a lot of older women that I admire and look to as role models, including my, my grandma, who is now deceased, but who was a huge role model for me. And never let you leave a conversation without you feeling like you were the most important thing in it. Wow. She was an, a remarkable woman. She was volunteering into her late 90s and you know lived to 102, but an amazing woman. And then my literary mentors, my old professor... Uh, Mary Morris, who taught me everything I know about writing, 
and who is a phenomenal writer herself. And to have seen our relationship evolve to a point where it's now a friendship, you know, of colleagues is overwhelming to me, really. And then the other friendship that I've developed in, with another writer, one of my most valued ones is the writer who was my favorite writer when I was growing up, which was Alice Hoffman. And wow. I thought that I... Practical magic. Yes. Well, have you read her new book coming out, Magic Lessons? It's very good. <laughs> but, you know, honestly, the thought that I am friends with her, that I email her, that we talk, that, you know, that to me is ridiculous. Just, you know, it's like meeting your, your crush or something. It's just, it's incredible to think that, you know, she even knows that I'm alive on the planet, much less friends. I'm sure there are loads of people who feel like that about you too. Oh, well, that would be nice. And lastly, and you've already answered this, you kind of cheated. How many fucks do you give? Oh, none. Zero. Less than zero. Is there like an imaginary number of fucks? That's what I would give. <laughs> yeah. Have you always been a zero fucks person or is that a thing you've learned? I definitely have given less fucks as I've gotten older. Because, you know, I mean, when you have kids, you you have to retain those, those so that you can keep them safe. But now they're kind of on their own. They're doing very well. And at this point, what you see with me is what you're going to get. And I'm not going to sugarcoat the truth because nobody deserves that. I don't believe in lying to people and I don't want to be lied to. I think one of the things that turns me off the most is hypocrisy. So I am going to do my damnedest to not be a hypocrite. That's great. Thank you, Jodie. Thank you for your time. Yeah. I've got serious coffee envy. Give <laughs> you some if we weren't on the Zoom call. <laughs> Take care. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear your feedback. You can reach me on Twitter at Sam Baker and Instagram at the other Sam Baker using the hashtag The Shift. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each week on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate and subscribe because it really does help other people find us. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.